<laughs> well, you know, fairness means the British win. You, you <laughs> must understand. <laughs> That's the definition of fairness, obviously. Yeah. In, in the early church, it, it's all about the bishop. Um, um, once bishops appear, then they control baptism. Only bishops baptize. They have a monopoly on preaching. Christianity, certainly post-Constantine, spread via the powerful, via the ways in which the incentives that it gave powerful, landed wealthy, to convert, to uh, give themselves better access to court and things like that. But here, in the 1070s, we see a pope able to confront uh, an emperor for the first time. If you are to judge by the, the, what's happening to our politics, is that there, are, uh, there is an army of people who feel that they're getting ripped off by these elites. The kind of uh, constitutions you see in Athens and a republic in Rome are even more specifically designed to prevent Yes, the kind of pyramid structure that you're talking about. Welcome to another edition of Uncomfortable Collisions with Reality. I'm here with my friend Peyton Bowman, a friend and colleague who is joining us from Japan, and with Peter Heather. Peter Heather is the Chair of Medieval History at King's College London, has been since 2008, and has previous, previously worked at UCL, Yale, and Oxford. He's just published, he's published uh, far more books than he really should have, uh, if he was going to be fair to the rest of us. Um, but he's just published a large and excellent book called Christendom, uh, a romp through the millennium from Constantine to the mid-medieval period of the 1300s. And um, you'll find out soon enough why I've got a particular interest in this. Uh, I've become more and more fascinated with the transition from ancient thinking to modern thinking and from an inherently pluralistic way of thinking when you've got lots of different gods in lots of different cities uh, between lots of different groups of people and the Christian idea of a, of a unitary structure to all that, and it seems to explain a lot about our ethics, about our religion, obviously, about our politics, and so on. So that's my focus, and um, I now want to introduce Peter. Uh, he should tell us anything more about us that I haven't uh, been good enough to tell you, and then I'm going to ask him to think about what happens at the beginning of chapter 11 of his new book, in which uh, Emperor Henry IV encounters Pope Gregory VII, not for the first time, uh, because in many ways it is an extraordinary story, and it's the culmination of this thousand years of development that the book Christendom is all about. Welcome, Peter. Uh, over to you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I don't think there's uh, anything else much I should say about myself, uh, except that I'm a, a great gardener and cricket lover. Ah, well, well, I'll... <laughs> here I here, which, which seems appropriate, <laughs> given, given who I'm talking to. For Peyton's benefit, there's been a little bit of a skirmish between England and Australia in an international test series. Focus on the question of fairness, and some people in my country are saying, yes, more lectures from the British on fairness. No, thank you very much to people who brought yes. us on the line. Anyway, anyway, uh, unless you want I to do, come back uh, on that, which you're most welcome to, we can get on with the show. No, I, I do honestly think the British uh, lecturing anyone on fairness uh, <laughs> does seriously lack uh, 
staying power, but there we go. <laughs> well, you know, fairness means the British win. You, you <laughs> must understand this. <laughs> well, right. That's the definition of fairness, obviously. Yeah. And if you don't yeah, get yeah. that, then there's no point in going any further. Um, no. So more serious matters. Um, yeah. Well, the see, we're of... going through a situation where fairness means the Pope wins, I think. But anyway, that's uh, well, uh, uh, a bit of your thunder. Uh, well, I mean, it is that old adage, isn't it, about uh, history is written by the victor. And, uh, it's, you know, it's obviously the correct outcome from a victor's point of view that they won. So that's uh, yep. that's the way it's going to be shaped. And uh, there's no escape on that. Uh, the start of Chapter 11 is such an interesting moment, I think. Um, one of the points I've been trying to make in the book is for just how long that's Christians right. were happy to except that kings and emperors, because they were divinely appointed uh, to hold unique levels of power, had, but by God, uh, had therefore unique religious authority. And you get occasional contrary voices, but uh, emperors have been in charge uh, both uh, by right and by practicality um, of the church for... 800 years, ever since Constantine. Um, but at this moment, um, we're in the 1070s, we see uh, a number of different forces coming together which will set up the change. Um, in Western Europe, this is going to lead to uh, the rise of the papacy as a kind of um, CEO for Latin Christendom for the first time. So in charge of things like calling councils, ultimate responsibility for uh, doctrine and for disciplinary standards, um, and with at least a say in high church appointments. I mean, not, they don't care who's in charge of a small parish somewhere in Kent in England, but they do care. Well, they get uh, to the, they are, get, but they do get to inspect them. They do get to inspect them. Yep. Uh, yep. And they do care who's the Archbishop of Canterbury and who's in charge of major monasteries and this kind of thing. So uh, all of those kind of powers, if you look at them in the first millennium AD, uh, after Constantine, they're in the hands of kings and they're in the hands of emperors. Uh, but here in the 1070s, we see a pope able to confront uh, an emperor for the first time. They've uh, excommunicated each other in one of these cheerfully constructive exchanges <laughs> that the, the seriously self-important people tend to have. Uh, but it's important to see that it's Gregory, Pope Gregory, who's changing the goalposts, moving the goalposts here. Uh, I, I think that is still sometimes missed, but he's put a statement down in the early 1070s called the Dictatus Papi, where he basically sets out an agenda for shifting the kinds of powers that emperors have and kings, in fact, in fact have customarily exercised into the hands of the Roman papacy. And that's, uh, that's what he and Henry IV are clashing about. Uh, and also about control of the papacy, because since the time of Charlemagne, uh, emperors have had. So we'll just tell our we'll just tell our viewers yeah. that Charlemagne. I'm no great shakes on Charlemagne, but I do know. Correct me if I'm wrong. That he got himself crowned emperor by the Pope on Christmas Day, 800 AD. Correct. Absolutely. So best oh. date in history, Christmas yep. Day, 800. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, since the time of Charlemagne, well, actually, since the time of his son in the 820s then emperors have watched over papal elections and have, again, had a say in papal elections. Uh, right. And Gregory wants to assert complete independence and transfer powers that kings and emperors had previously exercised into the hands of the papacy. They've uh, excommunicated one another. 
Henry's in trouble at home uh, with a revolt of princes. Uh, he wants the... Uh, and what uh, part of Europe is he emperor yeah, of? It's not modern Germany, but it's kind of the Holy Roman Empire. Can you tell it's us? It's the Holy Roman Empire. It, it, it's really Germany, uh, Austria, and northern Italy. Uh, right. Okay. It, it's, it's that chunk of territory through yeah. the middle of Europe. Um, Hitler would have been Hitler would have been very impressed. Yeah, no, he'd have liked it. Yeah, um, yeah. Though it didn't go far enough east, actually, for for Hitler's point of view. I should think. Right. Well, he can. Uh, well, that's right. He could solve that. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously. Um, so uh, Henry's facing a revolt of princes. He wants the sentence of excommunication lifted. He's got to uh, come and uh, eat um eat humble pie. We're at a lovely Italian mountaintop castle called Canossa. It's in winter. There's snow on the ground. Uh, the story is that uh, Henry and his wife and his son cross the Alps in winter, supposedly very dangerous, uh, and uh, Henry has to wait in the snow for three days outside before uh, Gregory will uh, admit him. Um, he duly eats humble pie. Uh, the sentence of excommunication is lifted. Uh, then, of course, uh, Henry deals with the rebels, uh, and immediately they excommunicate each other again, and the the battle continues. But it's uh, a, a symbolic moment for uh, of the massive increase in ambition that's coming out of Rome, and of the increasing uh, inability of emperors to do anything about it. That it's uh, this is a process, not an event. Canossa doesn't make this happen suddenly. Yeah, but you can yep. see the yep. pendulum is yep. swinging. Yeah. So, so this to me. Um, well, let me tell you when I really started thinking, gee, this, the, well, the, which I think this, this event, these events you're describing are called the investiture crisis. Um, yeah. I, I think this is right. And so I learned about this and also about the Abbey of Cluny, uh, founded in 900 and something, I think. Uh, and this is all part of the, what, what scholarship I've read on this but, and the significance that it had for me is that, um, this provides a model, really, for the modern world. Where you, one way to think about the modern world is that it is consists of lots of little monarchies. So think of your C, the CEO of your organisation. Uh, that 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 organisations go up to a single point, and yes, that point might there might be lots of democratic safeguards uh, or lots of ways in which this king-like uh, uh, officer uh, is held accountable uh, to people underneath them. But this is actually, that the idea that this is really the way to run something is, it, it sort of shocked me when I realized that ancient Athens isn't a democracy in the way that, mo so modern democracies are elective monarchies in the sense that every mon modern democracy I can think of has a head of state. Sometimes that head of state is the same as the head of government. Sometimes it's different. But it's a, a pyramid, and then we've democratized the monarchy. And the Americans don't call their monarch a monarch. They call him a president or her a president. But it's a single point. In some ways, it's more singular than the Westminster system, which has uh, which which bundles up this pyramid into arguably two positions. But it's really only one because only one has the serious power. Now, we, we've all must I guess we've all heard of Pericles, and Pericles didn't have the power that he had in Athens over 25 odd years because he occupied a position like this. He was a elected 
strategos, I think might be the right, well, you can correct me if I should, I know the plural is strategal. <laughs> uh, I think I've got that right. If, correct me if you want to, but there were 10 of those each year. And he is, is a, he's one of these characters, a, a general in the army effectively. And it's by virtue of his charisma, his ability to carry the assembly that he enjoys all this political power. And likewise, it was, what really shocked me, I guess, was that the Roman Republic likewise was quite self-consciously against the pyramid. It was quite self-consciously against this pyramid because you had consuls. Firstly, they were preoccupied with distributing power. And secondly, at the if, if there's a highest officer, it's a consul and there are two of them and they have some kind of veto power over each other. So then we get this thousand year period where we which starts with an emperor, Emperor Constantine, and by tangling, the, and this is my way of putting it, by tangling Constantine up in a set of codes, law, uh, the practice of religion, the practice of education, and so on, and but because, it, as your book makes clear, Constantine is a tra- uh, the, Constantine and Christianity have something in common, certainly after Constantine, which is this appeal to God as the chooser of the emperor in some sense that this you run this thing for a thousand years and all of a sudden you end up back uh back back with this pyramid with this pyramid which has been which has been institutionalized in a far more profound way than just an emperor with a whole lot of power so sorry that took so long but i'd love <laughs> i'd love you to Do reflect it. on that and tell me whether that is a you know what, what your story you know what what your story has to say about the, the the set of concerns that I came to your book with? Well, yes, I mean the 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 kind of uh, constitutions you see in Athens and Republican Rome are even more specifically designed to prevent yes. the kind of pyramid structure that you're talking about. That's the whole point of them. Yeah, um, that that is why they're there. We they've had experience of the pyramid yeah. yes. in the deep yeah. and distant past, and they do not want it. Yeah. Uh, so we create uh, a sort of much more balanced oligarchic system. I mean, Athens is not a democracy because two thirds of the people who live there are slaves and have no rights at all. It's all kinds of. It's not. They're just not a democracy like us. They're not a democracy at all. Uh, this is a misnomer in our terms. Uh, they define a small group, smaller group who run things, but they set up a system whereby it's extremely difficult for single persons. Yep. end up bosses and likewise uh, the Roman Republican constitution. Um, but I, I suppose I think as a historian, if I think through time, it's it's very difficult to run entities with this kind of power sharing, especially large entities. Um, your The processes of uh, communication and um, registering of opinion that are required in those kind of uh, constitutions uh, can only work on a on a pretty small scale in the pre-modern world because of communications technologies, etc. Um, yep. So you're going to end up much more often with things like our versions, where you end up with pyramidal structures with checks and balances within them. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I yeah uh, go, I, may, go. I mean I think one thing that's really interesting about the story you present in Christendom is, you know. Whether it's deserved or not, our, the image of the early Christian church is that this is a group of disenfranchised people who are undergoing martyrdom and, uh, you know, 
completely excluded from society to the extent in which they're being, you know, thrown into the gladiator pits or whatever it might be. And it has this very loose structure that eventually grows strong enough to kind of weed out some of the books that are non-canonical from the Bible, but it's not very organized. But then at the moment that Constantine sort of adopts, or, or in your book, uh, he reveals his sort of perhaps secretive Christianity that had yes. been there all along. It, it, it's a balancing act, yeah. He changes the whole way in which that operates at that uh, the Council of Nicaea. I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about maybe how that, that transition happened and why, how this pyramid was suddenly imposed on something that was in a way kind of inverted from that model to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a fascinating element in the story. Um, and I think it's not sudden either. You've got these, you have dispersed Christian communities, um, maybe 600 out of the 1800 uh, self-running towns of the empire have an organized Christian community of some kind and about 300 um, uh, as headed by a bishop. Uh, they're used to running their own affairs. Uh, they do talk to one another. Uh, as you said, uh, fascinatingly, they've managed to decide broadly, though not completely, by 300 on a set of books that they all consider canonical, the Old Testament, plus most of what we recognize as the New Testament now. Um, but what, how they're going to read those books, uh, precise doctrines, exactly how the relationship between God the Father and God the Son works, uh, where the Holy Spirit fits in, then there are clearly variant views, and it's a kind of tolerated variation. Uh, I think you're, uh, they've progressed by uh, defining what won't work rather than by defining what will work. So it's kind of the, the, a negative definition of the fringes as to what they don't think is a reasonable point of view. Um, they're in the middle of one of these fights when Constantine declares his Christianity, uh, but I think much more important than that uh, is that Constantine inaugurates this new mechanism uh, the ecumenical yeah. council, the gathering of enough bishops that you can plausibly and reasonably say whatever they decide on uh, does reflect common Christian opinion. Uh, that's the first time that that's been possible. There have been regional councils, but they're small. So North Africa or Asia Minor and a bit of Syria. We haven't had everyone or nearly everyone together. You know, uh, Even a couple of Brits make it as far as Nicaea. This is, this is so far in ancient it's terms. Growing, it's not. <laughs> it is. I mean, I, I'm, my mind is boggled by thinking I know. about it. I'm always <laughs> boggled by how well-traveled the bishops of Europe all the way along are. You know, I think Augustine turns up in Britain and North Africa and or, or yeah. is it Ireland? Anyway, they're all, all over the place. They're real jets. Yeah, no, absolutely. At home um, in Gabor, just minus the private jets. <laughs> yes. Uh, and suddenly, oh my God, we're all together. Uh, we can start to make positive decisions about what we believe. Um, and, 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 and I, what, I, I actually think it takes two. Yeah, do come in. Yeah, come in. I, know, I just want to ask quickly: Is this because c can we say something as simple as Constantine has the resources to bring this about, or is there could 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 the Christian could Christians have done this before, but they just didn't, or is it the fact that he's the emperor and he can make this sort of stuff happen? Yes, I, I think it's more the latter. I think it probably yep. hadn't occurred to people that it might be possible. Uh, yeah, Christianity is only persecuted periodically. Really, it's persecuted nastily. Uh, I mean, people die, and people die in unpleasant ways. But it, in pockets of time, not not, it's not constant by any means. Um, but I think that's probably enough to create a climate where you wouldn't want to gather all your leadership in one place, for instance, uh, and people wouldn't feel comfortable about leaving their congregations 
um, with uh, no certainty they'd ever get back to them. So uh, there is that element to it. But certainly Constein funds these councils. Um, so uh, it, it struck me it's like a huge um, research project in the 4th and 5th century to sort out Christian doctrine. Exactly. Where, yeah. where periodically yeah. we'll get everyone together to think about the next problem. Uh, yeah. But it takes it takes a while for the new habits to set in. I mean, as, as Peyton said, they're not used to thinking this way. Um, and, uh, you know, Nicaea doesn't solve the relationship problem between God the Father and God the Son or how we're to understand it. It puts out a point of view, um, which then has the uh, imprimatur of having been the point of view put out at Nicaea, but it takes people 60 years, three, two, three generations to accept it. They're not happy about it to start with, or quite a big chunk of opinion isn't happy about it to start with, and it takes a while to rumble around. I think by the end of that 60, 70 years, then the, we've made that mental shift from pre-Constantinian Christianity, where we're used to tolerating diversity and running our own affairs, to post-Constantinian Christianity, uh, whereby we think we should make a positive statement and everyone who's really a Christian should sign up to it because we've all gathered together, we've said this is what Christianity is, therefore you should sign up to it. Um, I, I do think that takes you know, 60, 70 years. It's after Theodosius's council in Constantinople in the early 380s that um, we, and his willingness to enforce it uh, much more brutally by taking churches off people who won't sign up to it and by um, fining lay supporters, important lay supporters of alternative points of view, really colossal sums of money or threatening to. It, it's that that sort of cements in place the new habits. So, I, I well, let me make an assertion. Uh, tell me if you agree with it, that Christianity is more uh, preoccupied with doctrine than any other major religion. Um, so that's my proposition. And then, and so I wonder whether this process that you're describing of the early councils is the time at which this, this, this comes into being as a particular preoccupation. Ah, now that's a really tricky question, which I don't feel, uh, qualified well, to answer. Well, okay. Uh, I mean, but I, I can offer a couple of observations. Yeah, One is yeah. Christianity, uh, sets itself a much trickier problem with its doctrine of Godhead than any other religion I know, because Christ has to be both God and man and equal to God. Now, how do you make that work? What exactly does that mean? How can that be? Then that's a really complicated problem about your Godhead that only Christianity has um, by asserting the full divinity of Christ, but saying he's simultaneously a living, breathing human being who's also fully human, uh, you've created a problem which is not easy to resolve. So it, that would be firmly in favor of your point of view there, Nicholas. On the other hand, I do know that um, Islam uh, and Buddhism, we've globalized our first year historical outline courses. So I'm now a bit more clued up on ah, good. Yeah. Things, yeah. Things, yeah. things than yeah. I would otherwise be. Uh, yeah. Also go through very important formative processes uh, where even if you don't have the full details, you can see that what emerges from uh, a process of sustained debate has transformed itself quite substantially from where it began. Uh, in Islam, it's uh, really from the death of Muhammad in the 630s through to the Abbasid period from about 800, so kind of 170 year period of uh, considerable internal formation. Um, Buddhist is obviously much older, but uh, again, there are a series of rather important councils in the early history of Buddhism. Are there? Whereby, uh, there are, yeah, no, very interestingly. 
Uh, and are and they, can and are they, do they have analogies with heresy and things like that? They can um, concerned about heresy? They do set up rival camps. They don't use the word heresy. That's very uh, Greco-Roman. Uh, but yeah. they do do that. And they also manage that transition from that Christianity is doing simultaneously from very small, rigorous sect that is demanding very high standards of behavior and is clearly only meant to be for a small group of believers, yes. Yes. all yes. of whom yes. are going to make it to heaven, to a mass yes. religion. Uh, that, yeah. that was the bit that struck me um, from my brief acquaintance with the early transformative history of Buddhism is that, that those councils, the meetings of their leaders, that's, that's the deal. That's the job that they're doing that, that jumps out at me. There. Yeah. And if I seem to remember, there is a kind of Charlemagne figure, this King Ashoka in India. So he yes. kind of nationalizes it in India to some degree. Yes. So. No, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So... Yeah, so so in many ways, I mean, the other thing, the thinking about these councils is that they they sort of conjure up Europe. Um, they conjure up this this unity, which is a remarkable thing. Um, yes, they do in in the longer term. I mean, you you've got as far as I can see, there are two very creative moments um, in the thousand years of uh, history, Christian history that I'm looking at. Fourth and fifth century, where you're tackling these kind of very big doctrines about the Godhead, and you know, as I said, Christianity makes your life very difficult. Uh, it's how you're going to resolve that. But then a second period um, in the eleventh and particularly the twelfth centuries, where, it, in a kind of way, it's about doctrine, but it's doctrine uh, that's tied into uh, practical or oh, patterns of practical piety much more directly. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the moment where ideas of purgatory are formalized, which in a sense is a doctrine, but actually I think much more importantly becomes a practical mechanism for defining what a good Christian is because, as it were, nearly everybody's going to end up in purgatory. So the whole of piety is directed around minimizing the amount of time that you or your loved ones are going to spend in purgatory. So, uh, you know, you're trying to look after your own soul, but you're also trying to look after the souls of those you love. Purgatory is kind of like hell, but at least you get you know you're going to get out of it at some point. So <laughs> that's uh, that becomes the focus. So we then have uh, it leads to all kinds of uh, logical extensions. We think about different types of sin, what their consequences are, uh, venal sins, um, mortal sins that might put you into hell unless you purge them. How long venal sins will put you in purgatory? But then also remedial action. What can you do uh, actually to counteract the, the effects of sin by yourself or by those you love in order to achieve better outcomes? So this is all happening, particularly uh, those intellectuals, Christian intellectuals at the University of Paris, which is emerging um, uh, in the sort of first half of the 12th century. But it, it, it's a whole set of doctrines, but they are much more tied into actual practical lay piety than, well, say, yeah. the, the, the 4th, 5th century where you're trying to, you know, deciding that the right way to think about the uh, relationship of father and son is identity of essence. You know, that's an important thing to decide, but it doesn't feed into everyday life in the parish, as it were, in the same way as what's going on um, in Paris in the early 12th century. And it is the combination of these two moments of creativity, the heritage from the big doctrinal forming uh, in the late Roman period tied into this uh, extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily creative um, and intense moment of uh, 
identifying purgatory and and generating a model of practical piety in Paris that creates the sort of totalizing model that will be spread across Europe and which brings Europe together. You need both of those things, I think. So, and and piety, oh, sorry, uh, so purgatory is a doctrine that is very handy for the church, a doctrine that, that can be parlayed into a lot of power from the church. First, it, it, the church becomes the guide to piety. It lays claim to the seven sacraments, which are which populate people's lives. And you'll have to correct me, but let me try and tell you what they are for the viewer, which are the viewer and the listener, which is birth, confirmation, uh, then marriage or priesthood. You, you know, you've got a, 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 a flow chart. Um, yes. Uh, and extreme unction. So I'm 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 missing a a, a sacrament or two. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and I don't think I don't think it includes picking up your pension or anything like that. But uh, no. so, what are the other ones? So where do we go? We get we go baptism, uh, baptism confirmation. Sorry, baptism. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's yeah. So so but my point pleasure. is my point is that these both that these things. Um, that that purgatory becomes an instrument of of power for the church, papal power, but but power for the church in a much more distributed sense, even including direct monetization via indulgences, which I presume comes a bit later. Um, yes, not not a whole lot later. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. confession and and communion are, are crucial yeah. sacraments uh, as well. Uh, they're the ones you're you're really missing. Um, it, it does uh, firming up that view of the afterlife uh, to that it, there's a that there are three possible stops: heaven, hell, and purgatory. I mean, it's astonishing that it's not until the the 12th century that that becomes clear. I think uh, I think in various things astonish me as I you know I'm a late Roman historian. I started from the late Roman bit and then wanted yep. to finish the story. That's yeah. So I know far yep. more about the late Roman stuff than the later stuff, and the later stuff was a journey. Uh, Various things surprised me on that journey, but actually the thing that's probably surprised me most is how late it is for the, the vision of the afterlife to be firmed up so clearly. Uh, I think that's kind of astonishing. Um, uh, and and, and the, then that would also mean how sudden it was that the, how quickly these reforms of the 11th and 12th century follow on from that. So yes, that's a kind of secret, uh, that's a secret ingredient, perhaps a, a secret it, doctrinal it, it is. Uh, And you can see there's a lot of resistance of slightly incohate. I mean, that's, uh, you get a lot of charismatic preachers in the, uh, 11th and 12th century who have their own little groups and whatever, uh, but, was, and they object to one or other of the sacraments or whatever, you know, but you can see, uh, the thread running through it is that there is great novelty, uh, in this model and people are surprised by it and it takes some time for it to be accepted. There's a uh, a wonderful article um, about the clergy of Lincoln Cathedral in England in about 1200. Uh, and Lincoln is a very major cathedral. These are very well-educated um, leading churchmen uh, within the English, the, broad, the English branch of the church, north of the channel. And in 1200, you can see the impact of these new teachings as they struggle to deal with the problem. And some of them are wanting to deal with it in the way they've always dealt with it, uh, but the more advanced are saying, no, no, this is actually a sign of purgatory. And you can see that the, the, the article shows beautifully 
uh, also goes back to their library. They've got some of the new books, but not all of the new books. So, you know, <laughs> these ideas are there, but they're not familiar yet. They haven't been internalized. Uh, and it captures that moment of transition. And that's in a cathedral in 1200, you know, in a leading cathedral community. So it will take longer to work its way down yeah. to parish level, et cetera, et cetera. If you can send us a URL to that um, article, I'll, I'd love to put it in the show notes for anyone yeah. who's interested in following yeah. up. And, and I yeah, just sure. want to stress here that at this point, so at this point we have the popular, we have the church having, uh, people may not like this word, but infiltrated the lives of Europeans, the lives of everyone in Europe who thinks of themselves as a decent person. And they train people to be part of this system in a unitary structure, which they control through the university. Yes. Uh, this, is really the, this yeah. is the first time it's happened. I mean, uh, in a sense, you've got um, uh, an, an interesting intersection between organic processes of growth. Because Christianity has been spreading and spreading slowly, um, but what it means for people and um, what difference it's supposed to make to their lives, that keeps getting the definition of that changes. Uh, one of the things that I hope comes out in the book um, about conversion periods, which are usually you know a century, century and a half in uh, different places, is that very often in those early periods, you've got almost no priests, almost no churches. People are being baptized, they're signing up to Christianity, but they're bolting it on top of the certain, they're bolting what they understand as the key Christian elements on top of most of the spiritual spirituality and religiosity they already have. Um, so uh, you've got this slightly dirty word syncretism floating around, which is kind of mix and match Christianity. If you ask these people, they would say they were Christian. I have no doubt about that. And I think most of them are being baptized pretty quickly. Um, uh, in the history of the spread of Christianity. But if you looked in, in detail at the religious elements of their lives, you'd find a very strange uh, and very different mixtures in each place with certain Christian elements uh, bolted on on top of uh, what they do and certain Christian ideas added to their understandings of the cosmos uh, as they already existed. So this has been happening for some time. Um, the period from the later 9th to the 12th century sees a massive expansion in the number of actual physical churches. This is uh, another key element uh, in the system, in the development of the system, that landowners are incentivized, uh, not least by saying it's really good for their souls, as well as not bad for their pockets, because they can keep some of the tithes, to build many more churches. And the great period of church building uh, is between the later ninth and the and 1100, a little bit later in some places, but you know, um, it, most of the parish churches in England are built um, between about 900 and 1100. Uh, I think the figure is 5,000 churches are built yeah. in that period. And, that, it's and that's that, just England. That's just England. That, that, that's just England, yes. Yeah. And it's yeah. similar. On the, I mean, it's similar even in Italy. It's not that Italy has been doing this since the sixth century. The great yeah. massive expansion of the number of churches, basically the possibility of sticking a church in every substantial rural community that yeah. happens around the year 1000. Um, and this means that you can change the nature of what it means to be a good Christian. Um, before that happens, it can't be about going to church on a regular basis. It can only be about going to church on big festivals a few times yeah. a year. You know, the, the, the calculation done for Tour in the 6th century, the basis of, uh, we have a historian uh, based in Tour who writes a lot and tells us, he's the bishop and he tells us about his diocese quite a lot. The, the best guess from that 
is that uh, people are on average six miles from a church in Tours, which doesn't sound much, but that actually means it's a 12-mile walk to go to church and back. So people hmm. are not doing that on their day off very often. They'll do it sometimes. They're certainly being baptized, but it can't be about regular church going. Only after all these churches are built can you do that. And then, of course, you have to staff these new churches with priests. So what, you ha what happens, I think, is that this process of organic growth generates a potential religious delivery system. And then yep. the new teaching from the, parish, uh, from the parish university, as then mobilized by the papacy in the 12th and early 13th century, uses this delivery system, which had been created by a different process, in order to uh, roll out this uh, extraordinary much more intense version of daily required daily Christian piety. Um, the and and when I talked about uh, indulgences being monetized through sorry uh, purgatory being monetized through indulgences, in fact I should have mentioned tithes, which is presumably a much larger source of revenue and one which is more federated. As you say, people are not handing all of it back to the church because they're using it to build local churches and all yes. of this sort. So it's a very yes. substantial. And where would most of those, the, most of those tithes being raised from what we, I mean, it's very anachronistic to call it the middle class, but where are the tithes? Although you, at least in movies, you see tithes being imposed in, they take a few chooks from the local peasants and things like that. Where are tithes a general, a general obligation to be taken yes. in kind? Yeah. They, yeah. Are, they are, yes. Uh, and they're used to fund the building process, to maintain the building and to maintain the priest who's going to uh, be uh, attached to the building. So, how yes, much, they are very interposed. How much goes to arms, ALMS? Uh, that uh, depends substantially, I think, on um, the uh, choices of uh, local priests. Uh, I mean, in the... In the sixth century, the the uh, defined split of church funds is one. Uh, this is, and at that point, we're talking about bishops. There aren't very many parish priests. Uh, is that the bishop gets one quarter of church revenues for himself? Uh, the second quarter of church revenues it goes to the, his clergy, his staff. The third quarter of church revenues goes to maintain buildings and to pay for candles and lighting and all the rest of it. And the other quarter is for alms. Um, I, I confess, I don't really know if that uh, vision that one quarter of church revenues should be uh, for charitable purposes is maintained in the, the later medieval period. I suspect well, it might be, but, but I don't know. I yeah, yeah, yeah. How does this process differ from the eastern part of the empire, eastern part of Europe? So you mentioned uh, that they were building all these churches in Italy, but you know, my my understanding of was that the early church was this very urban religion, you have these very powerful bishops in places like Constantinople, Alexandria, and the Pope was kind of one of these, the Bishop of Rome, he was one of these guys who was a super powerful bishop of a big city. And then the West was very rural uh, initially, especially, and you had some monasteries here and there. But, uh, you know, how, how did the balance of power change? So I imagine if you had a church in every local town, then these individual priests start to gain more power than the bishops, or is there a uh, a relationship, in the way in which that affected the structure of power in the, that that church, it, they certainly the become much more present. Uh, uh, and uh, in in the early church, it, it's all about the bishop. Um, in the pre-Constantinian church, 
um, once bishops appear, then they control baptism. Only bishops baptize. They have a monopoly on preaching. Um, you know, they, but their communities are small. I mean, the, the fact that, they, that only they can do this is telling you that you're dealing with a, a body of people who can meet together as one group. You can't have one person in charge of everything for a, a city if you've got several different Christian groups. So that is obviously not going to be functional. Um, you see over time the spread of uh, the licensed spread of some of these functions, baptism, um, preaching to uh, broader groups of people, um, uh, as you would expect. Um, the, the, the serious problem you've got with this massive expansion of churches in the high medieval period is the lack of trained manpower because there are no seminaries at this point. Um, we don't have a lot of information, but the information we have suggests that, uh, remember, priests can still be married at this point, that being your local priest is probably a, a, a heritable profession. In other words, we know of that there's basically one anecdote which relates to a family from Durham um, who are grandson, son, uh, grandson, father, and grandfather uh, priests uh, over time. Um, and that makes so much sense if that were the case elsewhere, because there aren't books. You have to be taught. Uh, they're taught quite a lot of liturgy, but they're taught by rote. Uh, it would make a lot of sense if it's a father to son thing in general terms. Um, so I think, uh, I think most of us think that that was the general pattern for local priests. Uh, but this is before all those churches are built. When all those churches are built, uh, you know, what is the training? If <laughs> there are all the people who are now conducting services, uh, what do they know? Uh, what are they teaching? You know, that that becomes a serious problem. Um, and it's in this context that uh, you see the uh, particularly innocent the third and his successors. Um, sponsoring these new preaching orders, specialist preaching orders, uh, the Dominicans and the Franciscans in particular in the first instance, but there are others uh, who are university-trained preachers. They either have to go to university, one of the emerging universities, or be trained by a member of their order who had themselves been to university. So they're up on all the new doctrines. I think they're the people who are going to spread the vision of uh, purgatory, sacraments, and uh, what the new patterns of piety should be rather than parish priests in the first instance because parish priests are not trained. Um, and uh, that's a, a crucial story. Um, so we have to, we've created this new system. We've got to, uh, without having a, a structure of training priests, we've got to spread the, the new vision of piety. Uh, but also, I think as Nicholas mentioned much earlier on, you, you've got this process of visitation going on in the 13th century, where you go round from place to place and see what is actually happening um, in all these parishes. And that's also uh, a very important element in the story, I think. So one of the elements of your story, which will surprise people, I think, um, I suppose it surprised me, but it all made a lot of sense, is that Christianity, despite Christianity's radical message that slaves are equal in the eyes of God to, and poor people are equal in the eyes of God to an emperor, that Christianity, certainly post-Constantine, spread via the powerful, via the ways in which the incentives that it gave powerful, I'm thinking of landed wealthy, to convert to uh, give themselves better access to court and things like that. And 
you, you correct me if you, that needs correction, but the point I wanted to make and then draw you out on if there's any drawing out to be done is that now after this thousand years has passed, they're now creating this new elite class, which is more relevant to our own time, which is the educated, uh, uh, an educated class. And in many ways, modern, that what is roiling the modern world, if you are to judge by the, the, what's happening to our politics, is that there, are, uh, there is an army of people who feel that they're getting ripped off by these elites, that these elites look after themselves and don't look after them. Anyway, there's a whole lot in that question. <laughs> please, please grab some of it. Please grab some of it. <laughs> Tell me what it reminded you of. Yeah, no, that, that does have the kind of statement where you expect to see the word discuss. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yes, yes. Let's, let's do that. That's right. Discuss. With particular regard to Peter Heather's book, Chris. No. <laughs> yeah, uh, no. I, I, Start anywhere. Finish anywhere. Yeah, no. Uh, let, let me, the, the bit, I guess, uh, where I end up is. Uh, with the reflection that um, this kind of extraordinarily similar vision of required religious behavior that spreads from Iceland to the Balkans, Straits of Gibraltar to Scandinavia, uh, that is incredibly unusual. You do not see it in the ancient world. You do not see it now in the modern world. Lots of people believe in all kinds of spiritual systems um, uh, I mean, as I said in the introduction myself, I'm no more than a kind of lapsed Anglican agnostic. Um, I have no, uh, would make no claims to know anything in particular about yeah. life, the universe and everything in that yeah. crucial question. But I can see that that is extraordinary. That outcome that you've got by 1300, absolutely the same set of rigidly defined rules as to right religion, right religious behavior, spread over that kind of space, that geographical space. And remember, distance is much bigger in the Middle Ages because people move smaller. This is like it's spreading over the whole of Eurasia now. You saw that total ideological system, coherent ideological system being observed over that degree of space. This is weird. This is seriously weird. And you need to think about it as weird. <laughs> you know, because this is not weird. Some people will yeah. insist that it's unusual and not weird. But anyway, well, okay. Yeah. Yes, I'm yeah. happy to have yeah. weird glossed as unusual. I would not quibble yeah. with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, they're, they're basically the same idea with a different valence, good and bad. Uh, you know? so, uh, yeah, exactly. I, unique, uh, unique. I, I, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm given to colourful vocabulary, I know, so I have to watch myself. Um, so uh, this requires a lot of explaining uh, that it's uh, this is not what normally happens to. Uh, people's entirely comprehensible uh, contemplation of life, the universe, and everything. It doesn't normally generate this kind of uh, totally coherent, ideologically rigid outcome. So why? Uh, and actually, there's a lot of power involved in this. Uh, I do honestly think that the best way to think about this is a kind of one-party state in the end, that actually you've been required to conform to this structure by a mixture of formal and informal constraints uh, that have been working their way through different groups in society for a thousand years, um, uh, which doesn't mean that uh, there isn't a lot of genuine faith involved in the structure. There's a lot of genuine faith involved in every one-party structure. Um, 
Uh, I don't discount that for a moment. But if you don't have the power element in there, the constraint element in there, you would never achieve this uniformity. Because I, yeah. I don't know of any, I don't know of any parallel structure that doesn't involve power at just about every level. Um, so, uh, and when you go looking for it, that element of um, more or less constrained uh, conversion and adherence is there. Um, uh, and I think there's a, there's a very interesting methodological problem, uh, particularly in the early bits, the, the bits that I start with, because um, what we get preserved for us uh, are the accounts of the more enthusiastically convinced converts. But And uh, the tradition has been to kind of use that material to construct uh, a vision of Christian conversion, which is entirely voluntary, you know, um, or deeply spiritual, you know, you've got this incredible monograph produced by Augustine of, of Hippo, his confessions, where he's telling you about the 20 year process and all the twists and turns that he went through. Um, uh, and it, you know, in terms of sheer scale of talking about conversion, that's, that's a dominating narrative. It's much bigger than any other narrative that we have, but even the other narratives we have are about saints and they're about, um, martyrs and confessors and that they're really convinced. But of course, there's a transmission mechanism, which means that that material comes down to us, which is medieval monks. Everything is copied by medieval monks. That transmission system uh, is inherently tilted towards preserving uh, the materials from those who, con who converted out of conviction. And they're real. I mean, I'm not saying everyone's forced to convert, not remotely. Uh, but I do, I would make the point that our source base is, is very much tilted towards those who convert out of conviction. If you go hunting for it, um, then the, uh, as it were, the uh, incentivization that moved lots of other people who are not so deeply convinced one way or another to go along with the system, which uh, then starts to emerge. And so I've been trying to kind of bring that out where I can. But uh, I hope not by trying to suggest that it's all about power. It's just I don't see how you possibly get to this uniform outcome by 1300 without power being there at every level. Uh, and I think actually the Reformation underlines that point because as soon as people are offered choices, quite a lot of people choose to go with an alternative non-Latin uh, Catholic well, Christian. And then, they, and then those alternatives metastasize into new alternatives at a rate of knots. Yes, that's right. So, yeah. I mean, I think that underlines how odd the 1300 outcome is uh, and how much force of formal and informal kinds is required to hold it in place. Because I, yeah. I think, you know, <laughs> um, yes, there's the Inquisition, uh, yes, there's lots of fining going on, but there's also, if you grow up in these systems, uh, they have, uh, they define the, the norm for you, you know, whatever, we're all, I think, prone to this, whatever we experience in our childhood, that's normal. <laughs> and then the world gets weirder as we get older. The things that are uh, around us uh, as, as children change, and uh, that doesn't seem right. You know? So if you can manage to put in place a structure that then will maintain itself pretty solidly for several generations, you are establishing a really strong norm. So the informal side of constraint is very important too, I think. So, yeah, but it's pretty interesting when you say power, early on it's power qua power, but it's not mostly exercised directly by the church. It's exercised in this, uh, when, when there is power to be exercised, um, I mean, the church generally does, you know, in the words of Napoleon, I think, doesn't have any divisions. 
Um, so always the power. I thought it was Stalin, but you know, we'll say why. <laughs> well, what did well, well, yeah, Paris is worth a mass. That's right. That's different. Isn't it? You're right. You did right. Um, uh, so, so, um, what, so the 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 real there's some alchemy here about the power because this is a a body that thinks of itself as the the Lord hey. spiritual and somehow. It's got. It's managed to entangle itself with 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 the people with the divisions, the well, people with the so on. This is this is the key point. Um, the church does not exist in the early period as a separate corporation. That that's what Canossa, if we go back to Henry the Fourth and Gregory yes. the Seventh, does. Uh, eventually, we define the church as a separate institutional body. Yeah, yeah. that's a twelfth-century yeah. phenomenon. Uh, yes, the the worldview is that. The divinity is so embroiled in everything that yes, yes, everything on yes. earth is reflecting the divine will, potentially. Yes. Human beings yes. can get it wrong. You know, the, the Roman Empire always had the get-out clause that, yes, gods choose emperors, but humans can misinterpret what God is saying. So you can end up with a jerk as emperor, and the, so you're therefore entitled to get rid of him. Uh, but the proof is in the pudding. If you get rid of him, if yes. he's defeated, he wasn't God's choice. Uh, right. If he's there for a long time and it works, yeah. he's God's choice. So yeah. uh, the divinity is so embroiled, the, wow. and the Roman state's ideological claim is that it is a direct uh, reflection of the divine yeah. will, uh, its yeah. institutional structures, its ideologies. God has made these things happen. It is the manifestation of God's will on earth. In that yeah. context, the church cannot exist as a separate institution, and it doesn't exist as a separate institution. It's part of this structure. You have religious specialists within the structure, but actually everyone is part of God's special structure for the world. And it does yep. take until the 12th century for the church actually to define a separate space for itself and to become a separate actor. So, you know, this is why med early medieval kings can choose bishops. They go, sure, it's, they should choose bishops. Yep. It's right yep. for them to choose bishops, you know. And it, in that context, talking about the church with a capital C and thinking of it as separate from these um, what we would understand as state structures, the kingdoms, the courts, et cetera, you know, the royal courts. Yeah. Doesn't make, yep. doesn't make yep. any sense. It's, it's not yep. the right way to think about it. Well, how, how early does that start? I mean, if you look at, uh, is it with Constantine or is it prior to this? Because I, I think there is that, uh, you know, we, you know, in the New Testament, it says, give unto Caesar what Caesar's and, and things like that. But there is a sense in which, you know, at least the, to his followers, Jesus is expected to be a member of some kind of revolutionary group or yes. kind of a, the new David in some sense, and to kind of take back control from the Roman Empire. But now, there's a phrase, there's a slogan. You could you could do things with that slogan anyway. <laughs> go on, go on, yeah. go on, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, no, you're quite right, Baton. It shouldn't have happened. <laughs> if you if you read the text, this is not what should happen. Um, but this is what I have. Uh, my phrase is not as good as take back control, but is the Romanization of Christianity in the fourth yeah. and fifth centuries. Uh, this is what. The, the process of conversion is always about mutual change, at least to start with. The religion has changed and the, the, the receiving structure that receives the religion has changed as well. They're both changed. Uh, but in the fourth and fifth centuries, uh, that is what is changed about Christianity. Uh, that it has to basically buy, you know, that Roman imperial ideology that it's God's vehicle for creating a higher order society um, on earth that predates Christianity. That's coming out of uh, 
Hellenistic visions of kingship. It's old. It's been there since whenever. What Christianity, what the process of making the empire Christian on one level is actually, well, yes, that divinity is actually the Christian God. <laughs> We're not changing anything else. We're just changing the identity of the Christian God. And when we do that, then all of that strand uh, that's there in the text, as you rightly say, uh, is going to be suppressed for a while. Uh, you know, it will be drawn on when emperors make the wrong doctrinal choice. You get individual churchmen rumbling on about it and saying, oh, emperors shouldn't be doing that. But actually, 95% of the time and 97% of churchmen all buy into the new ideology that, yes, okay, uh, Christian emperors are obviously God's choice. And the the uh, distinction between um, secular and sacred doesn't exist. I mean, uh, the idea of the secular is a very clever idea that's thought up on a rainy afternoon in the Vatican in the 12th century, I think, because <laughs> it emasculates kings and emperors for the, of their religious power and of their religious status. Uh, yes, it's, but, a, it's a fine irony. It's a fine irony that it was the church who came up with the idea of secularism as well. Yes, completely brilliant. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a, that's a, there's a line. There's a line in a Monty Python sketch where someone asks for money for the orphans, and he asks for a rich man, and he says that idea, that that idea is so simple, it's brilliant. He says, "You're just going <laughs> to you want this." So, so here we have it. I, when you started talking about Canossa, back to the original story, I thought, "This what a, this man is a true storyteller. He's taken us back to the beginning where we came in." Uh, but maybe this is just as good a place to uh, thank you a very great deal for this. It's been, I think it's been a fantastic conversation, uh, a fantastic book. And I might just read, you know, I think we need to try and sell your book because it's a damn good book. And, and this is for I a, random, object, I confess. This, I a random person, a random person on Goodreads, absolutely <laughs> stunning. This ambitious book writes the big history of late Roman and to early to high medieval Christianity. It takes a wide historical view. So the trends and themes of conversion, idealistic reform, intellectual change and coercion are always foregrounded, never lost in the detail. Peter Heather has always been a remarkable writer, but I think this is his masterwork. It goes on, and but there you are. I, I promise did... I did not write it myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I do know that universities have people beavering away on the, these are called comms people. So we won't Totally rule out the possibility. But well, that, uh, let, that let it, me tell it, you, my uh, my first book was on the fall of the Roman Empire, and yes. there was some large there was large scale chuckling from coming from upstairs at one point, and it was my sons, aged twelve and eight at that point, con concocting a review, which ah, of it, which they put on Amazon, um, ah. and uh, and it's still there, and it's had at least sixty one likes. <laughs> I and I know for a fact that they've not even read the book. So no, well, if you can find which one is them, then <laughs> okay, all right. Well, look, thank you again. It's been a lot of fun, and it's Hello. a fantastic book, and at a very uh, a book of immense contemporary significance, I think, um, uh, in ways that I I hinted at, or, or more than hinted at. Uh, during the conversation. So thank you very much. And uh, uh, we, thank you I'll, so much for having me. Uh, it's been great fun. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you very we, much. We've conquered time and space to, to have the conversation. We have, which it's great. easy. It turns out to be easy. Well, the Christian church started it off, and we're, it's it's still going, this, this great carnival of connections. So there you are. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs>